Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Alex Hoyer. The African painted dog is one of the most endangered species on the African continent, and 23 of them were recently born at the Endangered Wolf Center in Eureka. Our science reporter Eli Chen paid a visit earlier this week to the center, where researchers are studying the animal's behavior to understand how to help them better survive in the wild. Eli spoke with Regina Masati, their director of animal care and conservation, and Dr. Greg Rasmussen, who's a painted dog expert in Zimbabwe. Eli began by asking Masati to set the scene of a typical feeding session. So you are seeing our keepers, Danielle and Sarah, feed our puppies. Um, they know how much each puppy should get, and we can tell each puppy apart because they all have unique um, patterns on their coats. It's like a fingerprint. Every single one is different. Um, and so they keep track of which animal is eating what so they know that how much they're getting. And they've built such an awesome relationship with the, with the puppies. They, as soon as they see the keepers, they're super excited to see them. Right. So when you have 10 puppies coming up to you at once, it's, it's like a horde of puppies all at once get very excited. And the white tips of their tails that they have, they hold up in the air like little flags of excitement. It's fun watching them get all excited. Yeah, and can you give me a little bit of the history of how long the Endangered Wolf Center has had African painted dogs? Sure. Um, the Endangered Wolf Center has been here since 1971 working on canid conservation. We work with wolves and all sorts of canid species. And canid just means a member of the dog family, so coyotes, wolves, African painted dogs. Um, we've been working with African painted dogs since 2003. Um, the litters that you see here are actually our first litters. We just started breeding a few years ago. So we're super excited about all the amazing cute puppies that we have now. And tell me a little bit more about um, the puppies and how they've been, I guess, coming along. African painted dogs are very caring species. They are a one-for-all, all-for-one mentality. They really take care of the pups. Um, you'll see mom and dad, um, when they get fed, they'll regurgitate some of that food for the puppies to help feed them. Um, mom was great at nursing them. Um, and now the puppies are really getting those personalities starting to come out at four months of age and um, figuring out where they are in the pack and that hierarchy of who's going to be the boss and who isn't. Um, and it's fun really getting to learn their personalities. Uh, Dr. Rasmussen, yes. can you tell me a little bit about why you uh, traveled here to Eureka and what you're interested in? Well, I'm here, um, no surprises, for the African Painted Dog. I've been working with them for 31 years. And, and the whole thing is, is, as someone who's been passionate about the species for so long, it's important to me that I don't just have an interest in those in the wild. You know, the, we have this one, like a global one species approach where every dog, whether it's captive or wild, is part of the species recovery plan. And so I'm here as much as anything because I like to in some instances say well maybe we can add value to where the dogs are fed or the enclosures and in fact um, you know we found out originally when I first used to visit zoos every single f facility had these short-legged dogs that didn't even look like anything in the wild. So one of the cool research projects that we're doing right now um, that was based off of Greg's uh, research and observations in the wild is looking at what the nutritional needs are of growing African painted dogs. Um, mm -hmm. What he found in the wild was that the parents were, for a certain period of time when the puppies were small, were just constantly feeding them. Um, and just like we have teenage boys that need so much food at a certain period of their life, um, these guys are like that. They had those big growth spurts and they need that food to be able to have their bones grow. Um, and 
what we found in the wild is that they look different than our captive animals because we're very regimented in the zoo community of you feed so much a day um, at you know whatever age and then we increase it as they grow. Um, where in the wild they're just constantly being free fed and so it's very different and their leg lengths and some of their facial features were different from the captive to the wild. What do they eat? So African painted dogs are carnivores. Um, they have strictly meat diet. Um, we free feed um, carcass full deer carcasses here as well as we have um, a meat um, supplement that's Nebraska meat um, that is full of calcium and um, uh, muscle and uh, bone and everything else that they need. Yeah, just to give some context, how endangered are African painted dogs? Uh, at the turn of the century, there were probably probably between half and three quarters of a million painted dogs in Africa, spread right across the continent from, continent from north to south. Like the wolf, they were slaughtered in their thousands to, and exterminated under um, predator control schemes and you name it until they basically got down to like three or four thousand and and that ha all happened and in fact they nearly really nearly went extinct um, probably somewhere around their their lowest of the low point i think was somewhere around um, 19, 1985-87 i actually started working with the dogs in, in 1987 31 years ago yeah what are the biggest challenges with conserving them well, it, it challenges change, obviously, all the years. When I first started working with painted dogs, they were being slaughtered by ranchers in Zimbabwe, and the first pack I studied was 34 dogs, and 30 were killed by shot by a rancher. And the ranchers were saying, well, it's, uh, oh, they're killing all our cows. And it, Oh, then, of course, as a scientist, and this is why science drives conservation, I did a study and found out that 1.7% of the ranchers' losses were actually due to the dogs and the other, and, and actually this is a real stat, that's modern day value, 17% were cattle swallowing plastic bags and bale twine and killing them. Wow. Yeah, so those were the changes then. Now modern days, of course, got different challenges. We've sold the ranchers after 13 years, stopped shooting the dogs, when they realized that the truth had come out that they weren't putative cattle killers, even though they sort of knew it themselves, and prejudice was dropped a lot on the species. Yeah, speaking of prejudice, I had read in a magazine article that you don't like using the term wild dogs. No, I really don't like using the word wild dog. I mean, well, the first thing is, is that their, their first name was, was actually was the, um, the tricolored dog or the African hunting dog. And then, though, I'm talking now 100 years ago, 120 years ago, the, those hell-bent on persecuting them changed their name to wild dog. And when you think about it in terms of marketing, they knew what they were doing. They knew, oh, it's just a, you know, just a damn wild dog. And like, to give it this feral impression to justify the slaughter. And that's why I, I really know it's like going back to some of the nasty names that we use for races, which I don't like to use and I'm certainly not going to use on the radio. Yeah, they're sometimes called devil dogs. Is that something you've heard? Oh yes, they called them devil dogs. They call anything, anything that will justify the slaughter of this animal. Anything that you can say, oh, I'm only getting rid of the devil's dog. I'm only getting rid of a, you know, a damn wild dog. Um, and, and, and it was just complete rubbish. Yeah. Um, but it was, a, it was deliberate marketing on their point. It's the same way that if we wanted to persecute a person and we start saying, well, that person's a thief and a pedophile or something, He's done. He or she is done. You know, there's no, uh, and that's what they were doing in those days. And that's why 
Oh, well, you know, the name is wrong. The, right. you know, the scientific name translates as painted wolf-like animal. Hmm. So painted, and when you look at them, I mean, there's no such species that is more uniquely patterned than the painted dog. What do you like about them? What do I like about them? What I love about them actually was what probably captured me was their social system when I first started working with them as a young biologist. And one of my first instances really where they kind of sold themselves to me was I was doing working in the field with the dogs and I used to go out with the packs for about 28 days in the vehicle. I wasn't trying to be mountain man or something. Uh, and, and I would follow them and then on one occasion I heard an interaction between a pack of painted dogs that I was studying and a lion, a male lion. And I, when I get to the scene, there's a dog lying, is as good as dead. I called a vet, the vet said, oh, he's gonna die and it's nature. And I'm like, well, what is nature anymore? I'm start throwing those philosophical questions at myself. And I'm like, here's an endangered species, he's gonna die, do something. And the vet was like, no, I'm not gonna do anything. And, um, I came back the next, this was in the evening, I came back the next morning, the dog was gone, there were some drag marks. I thought, oh well, he must have died in the night. He, he was really as good as dead. And uh, then suddenly, so the pack was 11, then it was 10, and then suddenly it was nine and one dog kept disappearing somewhere. So we tracked that dog on foot and found out that the pack did not agree with the vet. And the pack had dragged this dog away into a thicket of brush and one dog, his brother was going back every single day to feed that dog. And it could be miles away. It wasn't like he was just going 100 yards. It's, you know, the pack sometimes would be 10 miles away. And this dog would do a 10-mile hike to his brother to lick and clean his wounds for three months. Wow. And then, and, and then that's, and, you know, there was all those kind of things. And how, as a species, I mean, these dogs could teach us an enormous amount in terms of, in the wild, there's no fighting. They have a social system that's unique. Um, they're not fighting for territory, they don't fight for status in the wild. Status is almost bestowed upon them by the other members of the pack because they, the pack identifies the, these pups here that we're watching now, in the wild, they will already, the males will be choosing their future alpha based on characteristics, not because he's fighting, play fighting, based on the smartest, the boldest, the most, one that's got the most um, initiative, puzzle problem solving, they'll notice that in their brothers, as we would in school, you, you notice that we're all different. Right. And they will notice that difference, the pups, and decide this is the male when he says, we're going to leave, it's time to go, they'll go with him, and he'll be our leader. And the females will do the same. So for the first two years, they'll just be assessing each other not arguing over it, and then when they go, it's like, right, we know who our leader is. And That's it's so fascinating. Yeah, and it is, it's unique. And then they, the other thing is, even on a day-to-day -day basis, they have a whole system of what we call preemptive conflict resolution. <laughs> and, and yeah, preemptive, because we all have conflict, you know? Right. So they basically have a smart system of solving conflict before it happens, and they do it like this. Every single day, when a dog wakes up, if, one, if these pups are sleeping or one dog stands up, every dog then greets every other dog. So they all, and by doing that several times a day, and by reinforcing those bonds, when one makes a mistake, um, the conflict's already resolved. It's much the same when we think about it. If I wake up in the morning and I 
whoever's in the same house, or whoever I meet, good morning, how are you? Politely, meaningfully, pleasantly. The likelihood is that when later on in the day I you know, drop their precious cup or make, do something stupid, they'll say, well, that's all right, Greg. Right, um, Ms. Masadi, uh, what he just talked about with the way, you know, the dogs choose leaders and so forth, um, is that something you've seen? Yeah, we're actually starting to see it with the puppies now as their personalities are starting to come out. You can see how some of them are already leading the other puppies. If they go somewhere, the rest follow. If they decide to lay down, the rest lay down with them. Um, we have one little female here that's got a floppy ear, so she's very easy to tell apart. Her name's Halala, and she's definitely becoming the leader of this pack, and it's, it's uh, incredible to watch her gain her confidence in the pack. Oh, so it's not necessarily an alpha male, it could be an alpha female? Yep. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah, it's both, sorry, cutting in there, but yes, it's, it's both sexes. The males will choose their alpha, the females will choose their alpha, and then when the two units separate to form new packs, because the males, male pups will go off and the female pups go off, they already know who their leader is. Okay, interesting. What's neat about the alphas is we kind of have this misinformation about what it means to be an alpha. We see what on TV that alpha means the animal that gets to eat first and disciplines everybody else and that's not what alpha means. They're the leaders of the pack. They're the ones that help make sure the pack survives, that they that the pups are are taught how to hunt, how to survive. Um, they're the ones that help discipline just like our parents discipline us when we get out of hand. And, and, it, and it's interesting watching this family unit. It mimics ours in a, a lot of ways because the alphas really are leaders like our mom and dad are, making sure that we survive and we're successful so that when we go off and make those packs, we know how to, um, they know how to make sure that those packs survive and that their pups survive in the future. Right, so I wonder, you know, these, this animal is not from the U.S. Uh, what's the benefit of, you know, doing outreach here in the States? It's a great question. So the Endangered Wolf Center joined the African Painted Dog Species Survival Plan in 2003. And the Species Survival Plan is made up of um, facilities across the United States, experts that know canid behavior and nutrition and reproduction in an effort to help create an insurance population. When you're talking about a critically endangered species that numbers are going down in the wild, you wanna make sure that God forbid there's a crash, we have the ability to reintroduce these animals someday. There's not a reintroduction project going on right now, but we have that ability if there's ever a need. On top of it, we have so many visitors seeing Danger Wolf Center who have never even heard of African painted dogs. And if you don't know something exists, it's gonna make it very hard for you to want to help conserve it. Uh, and then the third aspect of what we help with is the research. So we're a scientific organization, and we've been able to help with reproduction, nutrition, behavior, and all types of research that by learning more about a species, you can make better decisions about how to manage them and conserve them in the wild. Got it. And Dr. Rasmussen, do you have anything to add on that note? Well, yes, certainly. I mean, the first thing is, 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 is that the insurance population is really important, and that's why we have this kind of global species approach. You know, we can't have all our eggs in one basket. You know, the wild is getting a tough place for many species. And, but the other thing is, you know, talking about what research can be done where, there's a lot of research that cannot ever be done in, in the wild that, we, that can be done in captive facilities. I mean, for example, in our particular case, you know, quite often we have to fit radio collars and tracking collars and all sorts of stuff onto the dogs into the wild. Well, we have to, you know, anaesthetize them for that. Well, 
you know, to develop an anesthesia protocol. We need to have captive vets de doing it, because at least if it happens, goes starts to go south on an anesthesia in captivity, it'll be fine. You know, there's all the machines, there's everything in the wild. I'm there, you know, with a pack of dogs, and I'm like, this thing has just got to be so well tested that it isn't going to go wrong, or the likelihood. So that's that's the sort of the, the things where there there are those those helps. But the other thing is from the wild to the captive. Obviously, we're trying to bring in, you know, what we know about the dogs in the wild to help them in captivity. But in terms of their our value to that whole thing, is I spent about I think about 13 years working out and having dogs, getting dogs back into the wild from a from a from a pup situation. Why was I doing that? I was doing that so that if the need ever arose to take all these dogs out of this enclosure, because we have a need, we have a population crash somewhere, or we just want to introduce some genetics, we can do it. You know, we have to say, we can take, we can take every one of these dogs, into the, all these pups, probably not the parents, in the wild when they're about 18 months old, and we could make them as wild as wild can be. So is that a possibility that some of the dogs here could be reintroduced into the wild? It's a possibility that dogs can be reintroduced into the wild. The only thing is we have to know the genetics, we have to decide what spaces we want to uh, introduce them into. We're still, for example, waiting for some results on genetic tests on dogs in the US. Once we have those data, it may turn out that you know, there are some genes that we need back in the wild. We're starting to look at the landscapes in Africa. There have been some introductions into, for example, Ghana Rizul National Park. Well, those dogs came from South Africa where the genetics are pretty poor. You know, it may well be that, you know, we do the genetics here and find we've got better genetics. We'll say, look, let's take some dogs from the States or wherever in the world. Yeah, and um, so I know that genetic diversity is very important. Um, and the, you know, among biologists, you all know what that means. But um, could you explain why that's important for the general public? Uh, genetic diversity, basically, it relates to fitness in the long term. You know, the first thing is, is, is in fact... E.O. Wilson used to look at the, the bison populations in the States and he used to say there's, you know, there's, there's 10,000 bison there today and there were 10,000 on the plains of America 100 years ago or wherever it was before the bison crash. But in that 10,000 bison today, in that, that 10,000 bison 100 years ago, there was a bison that could withstand you know, whatever you threw at it, drought or whether it withstanding um, you know, excess frost conditions or whether it's withstanding a disease A or disease B. Genetic diversity equips animals to survive in the longer term. We, we're quite aware now that you know, genetic diversity plays a huge role in, um, in disease, um, in our ability to ward off disease. So if you've got a good you know, genetic diversity, the likelihood is that when some nasty distemper or even rabies comes along, some of your population is going to survive. If you're, if you're genetically in a poor state, you will all, all die. So when you're talking about an endangered species, that means that you're getting down to very few individuals. So imagine if there was only if, you know, a few thousand people left. Your genetic diversity goes down, and what happens is inbreeding starts to go up, and we all know inbreeding is bad. And that's where your ability to ward off diseases, your ability to have good healthy puppies that can survive anything goes way down. And so to be able to introduce genetics from a captive population who may 
um, have lost their representatives in the wild because of the decline, you get to reintroduce those new genetics out into the wild and help increase the health of that overall uh, population. And that is one of the coolest things that zoos help with, with saving endangered species. Right. So um, I want to ask you both, you know, what are your goals with the uh, African painted dog? Well, knowing that African painted dogs are a critically endangered species, our biggest goal at the Endangered Wolf Center and with the Species Survival Plan is to increase awareness, to have people be able to learn how to make better decisions in their own lives that can help reduce habitat loss in other countries, including Africa. We don't realize that our decisions here can affect animals all across the planet. Um, and when we, for example, when we eat a cheeseburger, that cow came from somewhere and that habitat was destroyed to make pasture land. And now that's habitat that's been lost for African painted dogs or wolves or other species. And by maybe just having a few more vegetarian <laughs> options in your diet, you can make a, dis a difference. And all that is to say that we can make a difference in conservation by teaching people how incredible this species is. Yeah, and Dr. Rasmussen, um, you know, you've had such a long career um, trying to save these animals. What would you like to see? A secure population. You know, really, that's, that's the beginning and the end of it. You know, it's a secure population in the long term. That, in my, within my foundation, Painted Dog Research Trust, my mission is not just obviously to secure the dogs, but it's to secure the people who are going to look after those populations. It's the young graduate students, you know, getting them inspired and getting them into conservation, knowing full well that when my day is done, that I've got someone to wear my shoes. Just add one more thing, just to toot your own horn for you, Greg, is one of the neatest things that Greg does is he works with the communities in Zimbabwe to teach them how to coexist. And those generations will then teach their children how to coexist. And by um, creating that environment, they're creating a safe place for African painted dogs to live, as safe as it can be. And everything where we else, are today. you know, all the animals, of course, painted dogs really are like being a pinnacle carnivore, are, 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 are our flagship. But they're flagship because underneath that, it cascades a whole ecosystem. And it's those ecosystems that really are precious to my heart. But the dog is my, is my flag on the mountain to say, if we can keep that sucker alive, the mountain will survive too. That was Dr. Greg Rasmussen, who's a painted dog expert in Zimbabwe, and Regina Masati, the Endangered Wolf Center's Director of Animal Care and Conservation. They were talking with our science reporter, Eli Chen. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.